All right, good morning uh, again, and, and uh, welcome to the story. If you're first time, uh, if you're here for the first time today, really, really extra glad to see you. My name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at the story, and for the next uh, half hour or so, I'll be sharing a few thoughts on today's topic uh, for this teaching. And uh, I have the real joy of, uh, of welcoming live for the first time since, oh, late last year, or fall of last year, uh, our Timber Grove campus joining us live today uh, with the live stream. We've been pre-recording those messages. So why don't y'all tell the Timber Grove campus how much you love them right now? Woo! All right. We love y'all. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we can do this. Uh, they, were, they were starting to get tired of those pre-recorded messages that we had to do for a while for technological limitations and reasons as we were transitioning to this building, uh, they told me it was like robot church. They said I looked like a robot on those things. And so they wanted, <laughs> I know it hurt my feelings, but I understand. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we're back uh, to normal in this way. And uh, hey, I just want to thank everybody that responded to those uh, surveys that we put out to the community a couple weeks ago. We heard you loud and clear about the things you love about all of these changes and transitions we've been going through and, and things you don't love that much. We've got some tweaks and changes to make and we asked for your honest feedback and some of y'all really gave it to us. And uh, we understand there's still some things to work on, especially as far as parking goes. We've got a solution for the parking garage. It involves all of you buying smaller cars. <laughs> so if you would cooperate with us there. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm joking, but we are actually uh, thinking about some, uh, some changes to make the parking situation better. And uh, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not a deal breaker, that kind of bad, but it's something we need to pay attention to. The thing that really struck me about the, the not positive, let's say, uh, responses was people saying, I've tried to get connected, but I haven't been able to. Um, no one's gotten back with me or whatever. That's the stuff where my heart really bleeds. And, and so um, just be patient with us. Don't give up on this. And, uh, and, and that connection beyond Sunday morning is of the utmost importance to us, even if we're not quite equipped or staffed to get everybody a response in a, in a timely way like we should. We will get there, and um, it is super important to us. And so thank you for, for being patient with us as, as we um, get there. All right, so uh, listen, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Who's excited? It's kind of what I thought. Who's excited about Super Bowl Sunday? Probably a little bit more, even though we don't have a dog in the fight. Um, who's got the Bengals? Bengals? No one? Really? Three people? Five, this guy's clapping. Who's got the Rams? Really? All right. Okay. So a few more people got the Rams. I'm surprised. I'm, uh, Joe Burrow is taking every, the, the, the country by storm right now. I'm surprised we have more Rams. Who misses the Oilers? Anyone miss the Oilers? <laughs> My feeling is that this town has still not gotten over uh, the heartbreak that the Oilers' uh, departure brought on. But uh, nevertheless, I hope you're uh, excited about uh, tonight. Tomorrow is everyone's favorite holiday. Um, wait, wait, I meant to say no one's. Tomorrow's no one's favorite holiday. Uh, whether you're married or single or whatever, no one loves Valentine's Day. Everyone knows it's a racket, probably a conspiracy led by Hallmark or somebody. But we're, we feel like it's a, a little bit of a pain, unless you're in that puppy love phase, in which case uh, you're good with it, but everyone else hates you for it. So, <laughs> so... Uh, we, we nevertheless are going to talk about love and romance. We feel like that's, this is the season for that. So for the next three weeks, uh, we're going to talk about uh, dating, relationships, and even marriage and commitment. And uh, so regardless of where you are on the relationship spectrum, there's going to be something for you directly in this series. Today is going to be mostly devoted to um, single folks 
and the dating scene. And if that's not you, um, you probably know or love someone who is single and on the dating scene. And so I hope that you can glean something from this message that will help you love them better. The series is called In Search of a Soulmate, and, uh, and, and we're kicking it off uh, today, uh, and, and it'll continue through the rest of this month. Um, people don't often equate the church or the Bible with romance, and we don't think of the Bible as a romantic book. And we oftentimes draw a very clear dividing line between the Bible and church and our romantic life. And we don't think the one should touch the other. Um, and we build a wall between them. And I, I want that wall to come down. That's the purpose of today's message. And the first part of that is understanding that the Bible is a deeply romantic book. And, uh, and I think it, it doesn't get enough credit for how much romance and heat is on the pages of the Word of God, because again, we try to keep those worlds separate. But you tell me if this sounds romantic. This is from the first story of the first uh, couple that ever existed, Adam and Eve. This is, if you want to open your your Bibles uh, with me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, all right? So this is when God had already made Adam, but he hadn't made Eve yet. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then God made the animals, the wild animals and the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found among the animals. So God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought the woman to the man. And the man said, this, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man will leave his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, say what you will about the Bible. It cannot be denied that there's some heat on these pages. I mean, I mean, Adam and Eve, sure, their, their options may have been limited. I'll be honest, all right? So they, okay, okay. So it's not like they had a lot of choices, okay? Like if Adam and Eve had Tinder, they would have just kept swiping and seeing each other. Like no matter how many times I swipe left on his face, he keeps coming back. So anyway, it, their choices were limited. But uh, nevertheless, we see Adam enamored with this woman that God sits or stands in front of him, you know, in her birthday suit. Like that's reality. And, and Adam sees her and immediately is this, this. And of course the dad joke goes, he goes, whoa, man. Like that's how she got the name woman. And <laughs> my kids didn't laugh either. It's okay. So, uh, <laughs> but this is undeniably romantic. There's some, there's some energy here. That shouldn't be overlooked. And we think about romance in terms of lesser, in my opinion, lesser stories. What's the most romantic movie ever made? Or what do you think people out there in the world would say the most romantic movie ever made is? Anyone? Just say it. It's okay. 
Notebook, thank you. Everyone says the notebook. Everyone. And it's not just in here, it's online too. All the online lists. Which movie is the most romantic movie of all time? The notebook. Listen, the stories you're going to find in Scripture are far more romantic than the notebook. Adam and Eve, a far more truly romantic story than the notebook. And the reason it's overlooked is the Bible is underrated and the notebook is highly overrated. Okay, so... Some of the differences, important differences are that, you know, uh, Eve wasn't engaged to marry another man when she met Adam, and, and Adam, you know, wasn't a sociopath who spent his life savings on the plantation home where he took Eve's virginity 10 years before. That's the story <laughs> we think is so romantic. It just gives you a real image of how fallen the world is and, uh, and how fallen our understanding of real romance is. Uh, the Bible is full of great love stories, I think. Stories that are often overlooked. Uh, Adam and Eve is just the beginning. Abraham and Sarah, great romantic story. Um, Ruth and Boaz, my favorite love story in the Bible. Um, and you've got, you know, King Solomon, who, well, maybe, maybe a little too romantic, that guy, okay? So he had a, a thousand women, more or less, give or take, uh, that he loved. He was a very amorous fellow. So he didn't quite fit the bill of, you know, the Judeo-Christian ethic that we often like to uphold in the church today. Nevertheless, he was created in the image of God, and he was highly amorous, which should tell us something, at least something good, about who God is. Just look at how Solomon described one of the women that he loved, one of his wives, right? Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is, uh, you can just follow along with me here and just... Appreciate this for what it is. This is the word of God, all right? He says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Whew. Hot, all right? So then he says, your hair is like a flock of goats. Uh, uh, to me, this is, this is a swing and a miss. If I'm honest, like, I think, <laughs> I think it's a reach, but he's using what he has. You know, he's using what he knows, all right? Your hair is like a flock of goats. Uh... <laughs> Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. So at least the sheep are white, right? And he's like, he's getting back on track here. He says, they're each like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each, this is great, each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Talking about her teeth. You know, <laughs> there's no snackle tooth here, baby. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know if you want to use that one on your girl, but um, it's contextual. All right. Then he gets back on track. He says, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. That's pretty good. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. I mean, come on. This is in the Bible? Like, I almost feel like I should stop reading. It says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. I don't know what that is, but it sounds freaky. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right? Thanks be to God. I mean, come on. Like, this is, there's some fire here. So the Bible is highly romantic, pro-marriage and sex-positive, it cannot be denied. And so the question is, why do we build that wall? Why do we act ashamed 
of our desires, or at least why do we want to keep the world of our desires separate from our faith in God? It doesn't make sense if, as far as God is concerned, the desires that we experience in this life, in these bodies, is a feature and not a flaw in our design. He wired us for this. He made us this way. And so we should not be ashamed of the desires that we have. We should not build that wall. It's the Lord's truth. But we know that's not the whole truth either, is it? Like that's not all the Bible says about romance and sex and marriage and relationships, is it? There's more. And this is why we build the wall, I think, as Christians anyway, because of the other stuff the Bible says on these topics. Because in some parts of the Bible, God seems to be reluctant about romance and wary about marriage and uh, skeptical of sex even. Consider this, 1 Corinthians 7, for example. This is what Paul wrote after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection about uh, the, uh, the, the marriage question. Paul, by the way, was himself a very eligible bachelor. He chose not to get married. And he wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books as a bachelor. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9, and then verse 28, he said, But if single Christians can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. As if it's a consolation prize to get married. If single Christians can't control themselves, they should go ahead and get married. It is better to marry than to burn with lust. It's better to get married and have sex in marriage than it is to burn in hell. <laughs> He's saying, now, now one time a bride told me that when I asked her what verse she wanted me to read at her wedding, she said, it's up to you, pastor, surprise me. And I said, hmm, <laughs> never give me that freedom because this is the verse that I read. Um, <laughs> everyone laughed except her dad who did not find it funny <laughs> at all. Then Paul continues, if you do marry, you haven't sinned, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I would spare you this. I want to get you out of the marriage problem. <laughs> Jesus came to get you out of the marriage. This is Paul's message to the early church. This is so countercultural to the way the world thinks today, to the way the church thinks today. And you wouldn't find stuff like this in the Bible if God's ideal perfect will for every person's life was marriage and family and a house in the burbs with a couple of kids. If that's what God wanted for every person, let's say even just for every believer, you wouldn't have these passages in the Bible. Paul probably wouldn't have been chosen. He would have found a good married man, you know, a good family man to play Paul's role. And Jesus himself wouldn't have stayed single into his 30s. I mean, you can make the case that Paul didn't get married because he might have lacked the game to find a girl. Like some of that comes through in Paul's writings. He's kind of a stick in the mud sometimes. I can see how maybe he had a hard time. Word is he was bald and cross-eyed and he had crooked legs. That's what they say he looked like. <laughs> so maybe Paul had trouble with the ladies. You can't make that case with Jesus. I think Jesus could have gotten any girl that he wanted. He heard their prayers. It's like he knew... <laughs> 
<laughs> he knew what they wanted to hear before he said it, you know? And so he could have had any, any girl, but he chose singleness as his way. He had better things to do with his life than just fall in love and settle down and get married. And he is the one we're supposed to be following. And so, you know, Jesus sets a precedent for us that, that I think would be surprising to many churchgoers today. So how do we, the question is, how do we reconcile these two realities? On the one hand, the desires that we feel in the flesh are a feature, not a bug. God designed us with these desires. God wants us to be fulfilled in some form or fashion, but on the other hand, God is raising the red flags of caution where these desires are concerned as well. How do we make sense of these two realities and reconcile them? I think the answer is found in the gospel. Jesus came to show us the fullness of God's kingdom. And in light, and there's a reason why passages like the one I read from, from 1 Corinthians are after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's because Jesus revealed the fullness of God's kingdom. And what the fullness of God's kingdom shows is that there is something better then the fulfillment of these temporary desires in these temporary bodies can ever reveal. And that while those desires are good, they are only good and not the best. They are good things, but not the best thing. And our issues arise whenever we take a good thing, any good thing or any combination of good things, and we exalt them to the status of best thing. The best thing is the unconditional, eternal, and, and universal love of God, the sacrificial love of God found in Jesus Christ. That's the best thing. And all the other good things are placeholders, pointing us toward the best thing. Even your marriage. If you're happily married today and you think, I found the one, she's my soulmate, and we'll be together forever. You will, but you won't. Like you'll if you're both believers and both end up in heaven, whatever, like you'll, you'll be together, but you'll be brother and sister, which is going to be really weird for you. If your whole relationship is just about the husband and wife connection, it's going to be a little strange in heaven, a little adjustment period going on because there's something better. There's some place better you're going than just the marriage altar. And every fulfillment of every desire will meet its end in the love of God and not in the momentary desires of this world. It doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue marriage. Most of us probably should. It doesn't mean marriage is wrong or, or intimacy is bad. Relationships should be avoided. No, 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 pursue those things, but pursue them as good things that point toward the best thing. They're placeholders for now, and we will see their fulfillment in glory, in Christ, right? So the wall that we build between our faith in God, and our desires in the flesh must come down for two real reasons that I'd like to talk about with the rest of my time. The first reason has to do with the whole church and what we do and don't do. The second reason is more specifically for single adults. So I'll start with the, with the, with the church. First, that wall has to come down so that the church can become the community that we're called to be, the community where Christians can thrive in their singleness, okay? And there is, admit it or not, there is a, some kind of a invisible block in the church 
for single adults too often, and I'm talking Protestant church, obviously single adults can become priests and leaders in the Catholic church if you're male, you know, <laughs> and things like that. I'm talking mostly about my tradition as a Protestant. And, and, you know, we treat too often, we treat single adult Christians as though they're minor league Christians, as though they're waiting for the, for the call up to the big leagues. Once someone has spoken for them, once someone wants them, once they get to the altar, and then they're part of the club. And, and you might think, I've never once treated a single believer that way, Eric. I don't know what married Christians you've met. They, they sound awful. And I'm not, not saying, I'm not saying it's on any individual. I'm saying we have a problem as a community. And I'm confessing, I'm a leader of this community. I'm confessing we cannot continue programming, planning, and preaching the ways that we always have and become the community God's calling us to be until Christians are, single and married Christians are freed up, empowered to be the body of Christ. And if you need any evidence for the story or other, any other church doing more for married people than we do for single ones, just look in the, like the church announcements Look in the programming. How many groups are available to couples or married people versus single people or all people? We're supposed to be a community together. And in fact, the New Testament calls us to be a family, a new family in Christ. Then why do family ministries only cater to nuclear families? It's a valid question. I'm not sure it's one that we really want to tackle yet. I'm not really sure I want to know what my inbox would look like if the marriage class was opened up to married and single people. If some 20-year-old lady who wanted community starts showing up to a marriage class talking to other women's husbands, I'm not really sure I want to know what emails I would get if non-parents started showing up to parenting classes and playing with other people's children. Pastor, you need to get a control on this. You need to build those walls again. I'm not really sure we're ready. But at a minimum, we should be willing to consider the fact that we're falling short and repent of the ways that we're not serving all of the people of the church. Little known fact, the story has more uh, unmarried people than married ones. Married people come more often, and you might say it's because single people have more freedom on the weekends. They don't have any kids holding them down. So, so they go wherever they want. That's a simple excuse, but I think it also might have to do with the fact that for for many single Christians, too often the church is just not a very hospitable place to be. They are often just reminded of what they don't have when they look around and see a bunch of family ministries and happy families. And if they only knew that the smiles on Sunday mornings couples have on their faces are mostly fake. <laughs> and they fought on the way here. Y'all know the drill, right? So we put on those proverbial masks and things like that. And and uh, play the part. Now, um, the church must do more, and, and, and we will do more. We, we, we will do more to make sure that single Christians are empowered to be every bit the part of the body of Christ that married Christians are. If you want any evidence, any further evidence for this, just pay attention to how churches and Christians treat weddings differently than baptisms. Everyone here has traveled across the country to attend a friend's wedding. You've spent thousands of dollars on the dress or the tux and, and the trip, and you've taken a thousand selfies at their wedding. How many selfies have you taken at a baptism? 
How excited have you, have you gotten excited enough to travel across the country to attend a baptism? Some of you have as godparents or close relatives, but maybe not for the same number of your friends and things like that. I think we prioritize the things the world tells us to, and that's not who we're called to be. The church can do better, and we need to repent until we do. Secondly, the second reason the wall between our faith in God and our desires in the flesh must come down is because until it does, single believers on the dating scene will date according to the ways of the world instead of according to the biblical principles that we believe in. As long as that wall is up, we're not going to have honest conversations about dating and relationships and sex and intimacy at the church because that has to be parsed out, kept out, so we can be comfortable together. Y'all know one of our core practices at the story is challenging comfort. This is one way that we can do this. So how are Christian singles supposed to be dating today? What do we expect them to do? I mean, the old sort of adage is, um, and it's powerful ones, like, in the Bible times, at least, you know, after puberty, like people were getting hooked up with each other by their religious community just a few years after that. And now people are still going through that process of maturity, 13, 14 years old. They're staying single into their 30s and their churches are telling them just be celibate. And their bodies are telling them be anything but celibate for years on end. And the loneliness sets in and, and it's, it's almost an impossible ask with the way that we're set up anyway, without providing real community and family to people who are unmarried. So what do we really expect of single Christians? One thing that we know for sure is that online dating has not made things easier. By online dating, I just mean apps. And most of the weddings that I'm asked to do now, the couple met on one of the apps. What's the one where the girl's in charge? Bumble, that's the one. That's where everything's happening on Bumble right now. If I'm not paid to say that either. But like Bumble apparently is more, at least for the people I've run with, it's more successful than uh, Tinder, which is, seems to be a nightmare. And um, what's the other one? Match. Match, I don't know about. I don't know about Match. Doesn't seem like much has happened on Match in the last few years. I'm not sure why. I've never had a Match account since so I was married at 20. In 1999, before there was match, and I thank God every day <laughs> because I'm not sure I could do it. What's happening now is uh, just more and more confusion, less and less clarity. Ambiguity is a word that I hear. Everything's ambiguous. There are no rules. The rules aren't clear. If there are any expectations, no one says what those are. No one's defining the relationship. Everyone's ghosting each other. I'm like, how do you even ghost someone in 2022? It's like, they don't even care if they're still seen around. They just won't respond to your messages anymore. It's a really sad and scary and painful time to be on the dating scene. At the same time, there are signs that people on the dating scene are still longing and craving, longing for and craving principles, something firm on which to stand and, and, and date some rules or guidelines. And, uh, and this is borne out, especially after COVID. COVID seems to have sped up people's desire for those things. Fewer people are in on Tinder or Match or whatever for casual meetups than they were before COVID. More people 
are waiting longer now to take that intimacy step. And the experts at Match.com did a whole post-COVID or during COVID survey of all of their users, and they were shocked to find that over two-thirds of their users are willing to wait until the third date to go to bed with someone new, which was, I don't know, I was supposed to be happy about that as a pastor, but I just couldn't completely be happy about that because it's also like, how far have we fallen? As, uh, but I try not to be a judgmental curmudgeon. But at the same time, the match guys were like, we can't believe the puritanical revolution that's happening in our world right now. People are waiting until the third date. Okay, whatever. So I just breathe and take the good with the bad, right? I'm just trying to think that least people are wanting something more. People at least claim to be, uh, only 11% of users of these apps say that they're there for something casual in 2022. So one thing that we know for sure, and every single adult here who's tried these avenues for meeting someone could confirm this, the way that the world dates and relates will wear you out. It will mess you up. It will beat you down. It will eat you alive. It will set you up to fail because the principles of the way the world dates and relates are based on self-fulfillment and so-called happiness, which leave you neither happy nor fulfilled. And so what do we offer that's different? There's a few things as I, as I wrap up, a few very simple practical things, and then next week uh, we'll take this a step further. A few basic principles, if you're looking for some ground on which to stand, and you need a reset button in your life and your search for love, um, I, I would just offer these simple principles. The first is, uh, is very simple and basic as a believer. It's to understand that your highest purpose in life is not to find a match. You are not here to find your soulmate and walk the aisle and have your friends travel to Belize to watch you get married. It's like, that's not why you're here. And even if that day never comes for you, even if the one never appears in your marriage, your dreams, your whatever never materializes, that doesn't change your purpose one bit. And it doesn't affect or diminish your worth one bit. You are as worthy now in the eyes of God and your mission is the same now as it would be if you were to get married tomorrow. It doesn't affect anything other than just adding more responsibility and running a home and things like that. When you are single and uh, serving God, you're not a victim because no one has spoken for you. You are aware that you were spoken for long before you will ever walk the aisle. And when Paul spoke to the Christians about marriage, you really need to pay attention in 1 Corinthians 7, because when Paul said what he said about marriage, he, he's clearly saying that marriage is for the weak and pitiable Christians, the ones who just can't control themselves sexually. And so it's better to just have sex in a marriage bed than it is to burn with your lust. And now we treat, in many instances, single Christians like the ones who are pitiable. And we tilt our heads and we say, are you seeing anyone yet? No, oh, someone wants you. You'll have to just... Get out there more, you know, put yourself out there and someone will speak for you. And, and that's kind of the dynamic is very condescending. But if you know what the gospel is telling you, it is, it is revolutionary. And really in the first church, Paul is speaking 
in a completely upside down way. He's, he's essentially describing a first generation Christianity where it was the single believers who were the alpha dogs and it was the married ones who didn't quite get it. Maybe the single ones walked around the first century church and tilted their heads and go, oh, one day, one day you'll see, you'll understand, you'll be able to overcome your sexual compulsions, oh, and you'll see that you were spoken for long before you ever walked the aisle. That's the revolutionary nature of the gospel of Jesus, is that you are here for more than marriage. The second thing I would add to these practical principles for biblical dating is simply that um, if you're dating, don't date casually. This is a very practical, almost didn't include this, but it's just so obvious. There is no win in, in casual dating for Christians. By casual dating, I mean you're just out there to meet people and have some fun. You can do that with friends. You don't need Tinder to do that. And so, um, again, I feel guilty saying this because the church must do more to give more people more chances to meet more new people in a healthy and holy environment. But at the same time, why, why date casually? What is the win there? Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, so honor God with your bodies. And I think this just means being very intentional with how you date and put yourself out there. No games, no games, no ambiguity. State your intentions early. Define the relationship early. Guys, especially, I don't know why I'm old school, but guys, I think it's important that we get better about defining the relationship. And third, finally, even in disappointment and despair, trust God. When you don't get what you want, it doesn't make you a victim. When you don't get what you want, it doesn't mean you're being punished. When you don't get what you want, it's usually because God is graciously shaping your character so you become the person he knows you can be. So you can share his love with the world around you, whether you're married, single, or anywhere in between. The struggle is a blessing. It's a gift. And I know it's easy for me to say, like, Pastor Eric, you've never been out there. You don't know what it's like. I know, I know. But listen, you don't have to trust me as a witness to these things. Jesus knows, and he knew very well what it's like to be single in adulthood. Jesus knew very well what it was like to be in his 30s in a culture when everyone was getting married, and to go to bed alone at night, Jesus knew what it was like to go to weddings of his friends without a date. The only wedding we know Jesus went to, he took his mom as his date. What does that tell you? Jesus knows the struggle. You don't need me to tell you. Go to him. Let him help you carry the burdens that you're carrying. You don't have to face it alone. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these reminders today. Help us, Father, to trust in you even when we are disappointed and distraught, when we feel alone and forsaken. Remind us that we're here for more than just the things that this world celebrates. There's so much more that we're living for. God, help us to be the church you created us to be where um, everyone, regardless of relationship status, has a role and a place and a purpose in this community. We thank you for Jesus who shows us what it really means to be faithful in relationship. And we pray in his name, amen.